Hi, everybody. It's John Filippelli along with, wait, there's no Kevin Sullivan. It's, it's Ashley Fugazi. Hello. Hello, Ashley. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What How brings you? you to this neck of the neighborhood? Not sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> It'll unfold, will it? As time goes on, yes. As, as time goes by. All right. Yeah, all right, then. Go ahead. So, yeah, so I'm going to ask you a few questions today for your podcast. Uh, so that, that's what you're doing here, right? That's why, that's why I'm here. Do you have any calls? I'm also trying to, like, <laughs> land the plane. Land the plane. <laughs> I didn't get any phone calls today, did I, Riley? No, nothing Good. wild and crazy. All right. Good. All righty. So. Ready. Plenty of big news this week. Like, yes. And, of course, the biggest news being the Yankees signing of Garrett Cole, which yeah. you called, by the way. So the deal is nine years, $324 million, which is a record deal for a pitcher. What are your thoughts on, first, the overall deal for the Yankees, and then drilling down a bit more, comment on the length and economics of the deal? Well, it's a two-part question. Yes. Okay, we'll, we'll start with the first part. <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer the first part first. Um, what was the deal the Yankees had to make? They needed that top end, the rotation ace, uh, someone who was in the prime of their career. And Rick Cole has been such an amazing pitcher. He's been the best pitcher in baseball the last couple of years. And he just has been. If you look at the aggregate numbers the last few years, he's been the best. And the Yankees needed what he could give them. He gives you length. Every every start out, he gives you seven, eight innings consistently. Gives you strikeouts. He's, um, he, he's a leader in every respect. Um, he's got great stuff. He's got... He's got what you need. In a postseason, you need you, you need at least two strong pitchers at the top of the rotation. That's the formula to win. Having Cole and having Severino gives the Yankees that. Two strong pitchers, incredibly strong pitchers at the top of their rotation. Then you augment that with you know, with Paxton and Tanaka. Yankees have a, a formidable starting rotation now. And, and Montgomery in the wings as well. And, and, you know, with Garcia in the minors, the Yankees are well-situated in starting pitching. It used to be a weakness, not a weakness. Let's just say it wasn't a strength. I don't want to use the word weakness. This wasn't a strength. Now it's a strength. To go with their bullpen, to go on both sides of the ball, the way they play offense and defense, the Yankees right now are, to my mind, the favorite to win the World Series and should be. Cool. And in terms of the economics and where it goes, listen, nine years is a really long time, and it's a lot of money. But, you know, uh, uh, but you know what? It's... Look, the, f the fans have to look at it like this, and we look at it. It's about winning championships. That's the measure that the Yankees have always used. That's always been their barometer. It's always been how, how many championships can we win. That's what we're about. We're about winning. We're about winning championships, and that's why the getting Cole was, was – if you're going to take that next step, the Yankees just been a little short the last couple of years. This will put them over the top. So to, to in my mind and to the mind, I'm sure, of many of our fans, is, as you know, as the fans weigh in on the deal, they see everybody seems to be very excited. The, the fan base needed the excitement that this gives them, and it gives us an ace at the top to go with Severino. And like I'm saying, I, I think, it's a, I think it's, a, it's a great blueprint for championship. All right, what do you think his contract means for the Baby Bombers? Because moving forward, guys like Gary Sanchez, Glaber Torres, Aaron Judge, they're all going to have to get paid. Well, that's true. They're, they are going to have to get paid. But you, know, but, you, but you look at it, you have to look at it like this. So as, as players you know, become eligible for, for, for uh, more money, uh, there's also players that come off the books. You know, so we don't know the future beyond this year of, of, of half of the Yankee rotation, for that matter. I mean, that's, what, again, why why Cole was so important because you don't know the future of Tanaka and Paxton you know maybe they stay with the Yankees maybe maybe they don't after this year because it's their it's their walk years they could leave so say say they leave well then well, there, there's money there that'll be applied to something else and you know and the Ellsbury comes off the books as well I mean there's money there that the Yankees were paying they won't be paying any longer and you know money does come off the books so you know you I think you have to address those situations as they arise and deal with them then but you know but again as as we are situated right now, the Yankees are in great shape, and I do think they have to take it a year at a time when it comes to con contracts and worry about it. This was the get they had to make. They made it, and right now we're situated. We're in a wonderful situation. All right, so sticking with signings, George King broke the news earlier today that Brett Gardner has agreed to re-sign with the Yankees on a one-year, $12.5 million deal. There's also a club option for a second year at $10 million. No-brainer? To me, no. To me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, he, he was so he's, – look, he's a – He's a fan favorite. He's he's a homegrown Yankee. He has, he's coming off a career year. Yes, he's in his mid thirties. You know, I, I understand that. But still, and all for all, he's meant for the team and for the, the way he the way he's always prepared and the way always always conditioned. 
I, I think that for, for one year and a one-year option, I think it was a no-brainer. And he's so important to the Yankees. And again, Yankees need the help in the outfield. We've been short outfielders. You know, you don't know the Stanton's, Stanton's health, and you don't know, you know, Talkman's coming back from an injury. You don't know exactly when he's back. Hicks has been hurt. He'd be out through the middle of the year. The Yankees needed to find somebody to help patrol center field, and, and, and he, you don't have to look any further than Brett Gardner. He'll be a huge asset there. To go with Talkman if he comes back, to be ability to play center. And, you know, I'm sure that Frazier will be back, maybe be back. Who knows? But the only constant you have right now is Judge. That's why bringing Gardner back was important. The Yankees lost a fan favorite this week because Didi Gregorius signed with the Phillies for one year at $14 million. I believe Kevin Sullivan called that. What it, are your thoughts? Um, Didi's a great player. I mean, he really contributed to the Yankees, uh, the success the last couple of years. But, you know, he was hurt. He was coming off of the Tommy John injury. He was slow to come around last season. If you're the Yankees, you sit there and you say, is, is he slow to come around because that injury took a lot out of him and he's now on the, he's now on the, 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 down, the south side of 30 because he's now he's over 30? Uh, is it, do, am I willing to make a long-term investment in that? Or do I say, you know, my, my, he's had an injury, maybe he'll come back and we like it. No, I think the Yankees made the right call. I mean, the Yankees had to, you know, they had to look at their, look at their payroll situation. Like I said, you can't sign everybody. And they, the way they looked at it was they looked at D.D. and said he's a very fine player, but Torres can slide to short. LeMayu can go back to second where he's really at home, at home the most. And th that is our better situation, and that way we have that money free to put toward Cole. Okay, so second base shortstop, finish out the opening day infield. With him, infield. Uh, I would say it's a battle between between Oshilla and uh, Andujar for third base. We'll see how sp spring trading will tell us a lot how that goes. Oshilla right now is the incumbent, though. It's going to be up to Andujar to unseat him and to show that he can, you know, he's come back from his injuries and he can play the position two-way. Um, and first base right now would belong to Voight, I would think, coming back. So it would be Voight right now, Voight, LeMayu, Torres, and uh, either Oshilla and maybe Andujar at third. Okay. And uh, the Yankees are reportedly parting ways with Austin Romine, who appears to have a two-year pact with the Tigers. Great move for Romine? Yes. I mean, the deal was for over $4 million. I mean, uh, uh, you know, in certain situations, you know, Austin, I mean, Austin is, you could even consider him the greatest backup and catcher in the history of backup catchers, I suppose. He's a great, as a backup catcher, he was terrific. He played tremendous defense. He could hit enough. Where he gets you some timely hits, he got some big hits for the Yankees. And I don't forget, it's funny he's going to Detroit because I remember the fight against the Tigers two years ago. So when uh, he, and, he and Guerrero got, uh, he and Cabrera rather got into it, and it was quite the, it was quite the brawl that the Yankees and the Tigers had, and uh, he was right in the middle of it. So, but, but that also shows you he's feisty. He's feisty. He's a leader. He's a good guy, and this is a this is a, a good get for him. Again, the Yankees could move on and and find themselves a a, a pretty decent backup catcher and. And, and uh, let Austin, you know, move on to uh, to the payday that he wants to get. Okay. So switching gears, you have to interview Susan Waldman coming up, which I'm looking forward to. How long have you known Susan? Oh, wow. I, I know Susan since the late 80s. Um, Tom Seaver introduced us, uh, and uh, we've been we've been friends uh, through the years. And, uh, she, I mean, she's just blazed trails, whether she, she was blazing trails in, in theater or she was blazing trails as a, you know, WFAN radio, uh, as a beat reporter, or, or in her early days of working the baseball network uh, in the mid-'90s. And uh, where she was the, f the first woman to sit behind a microphone in a booth and, and do uh, be an analyst. Um, the work with John Sterling over these many years, working the clubhouse, being when it wasn't fashionable being in a man's world, being in a clubhouse, uh, to blaze the trails that she's blazed, in the way in which she's blazed them, in the way in which she's conducted herself. She's truly a remarkable woman, and uh, she's a good friend. All right, so what are we waiting for? Let's get straight to the interview with Susan. All right, my very special guest is Susan Waldman. Susan, tell me what it was like, uh, what your childhood was like growing up. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> Well, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and um, Bostonians have three things that are important. Um, sports, education, and politics, not necessarily in that order. And that's pretty much what I, what I did. My, um, my grandfather, who was my mother's father, was pretty much the most important person in my life until, you know, except for my mother. And, um, you know, it was a very... <laughs> upper middle class Jewish family growing up in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, it, it's kind of funny because I was never like 
anybody else. I mean, I, di I didn't want to do things that, you know, little girls did. I tried to fit in. I didn't play sports, but I always knew I was going to sing. I always knew I was going to dance. And, um, and when I was three, my grandfather took me to Fenway Park. He told me it was my own season ticket, but the tickets belonged to the state because he worked for the state of Massachusetts. But they were in the first row behind the Red Sox on deck circle, and I went with him all the time. So I called it my ticket because the tickets were always, always there. And that's in the 50s, and, you know, there's uh, my first hero and only hero was Ted Williams, who in that day and age you could actually, where I sat, reach out and touch him. I actually could reach out and touch Ted Williams. Um, Theater, always went to theater because in those days, Broadway shows tried out in Boston. Every single one of them. I saw the original companies of West Side Story, Most Happy Fell Out, um, Music Man. That was all in one year in 1956-57. So it was all those kinds of things. And um, John Kennedy once said that uh, Boston's the greatest place in the world to come from because it's a, a, right. it's a small, big city. There's one of everything, and you become passionate about everything you do. And everything I did, I became passionate about sports and music and politics and education. And, you, and your childhood led you to these various careers that you've had along the way, these terrific stops that you've had that have led to this where you are today. Well, I always knew I was going to sing. I, I started singing when I was two. I mean, really, my mother kept a, an old, you know, those old 78s, you used to be able to go into like a, a store and get a, a record. And she had a thing of me singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star when I was two. Not that I remember it, but evidently it was brilliant. And I always wanted to do that. And then, of course, I loved sports and I loved baseball. And um, my mother, I remember saying, well, you know, dear, you're not going to grow up to be Ted Williams. I said, that's okay. I'm going to be a Broadway star. I don't need to be Ted Williams. There already is one. So that's, you just, so that was my focus anyway. But sports was my outlet. And that was a thing that I loved. Um, I loved it. I just would go every Saturday. We had tickets to Harvard football games because my grandfather was class of 1916. So we went every Saturday. Um, in the mid-50s, my dad would start taking me to the Boston Garden, and I learned my basketball by sitting in Boston Garden. Nobody went back then. It was your 2,000 people. You knew everyone in the room. And watching Red Auerbach, Coach, Cousy, Sharman, Russell, Heinsohn, and Ramsey, greatest five ever in that time, and Red yelled, yelled when he coached, I told you not to go into that court. <laughs> so you'd sit there, and you'd learn basketball listening to Red Auerbach yell at the guys on the court. I mean, look, think of the guys that were on the court. That's how I learned basketball. You knew everybody in the place. Playoffs, it was filled. But I knew everybody. Half of them went to my Hebrew school. Half of them went to temple with me. And they're all sitting there, 2,000 people a night. And you learned basketball that way. The baseball was something special. Walking into Fenway Park when you're three and sitting where I sat is unbelievable. And the funny thing about Boston is that I had no idea that little girls weren't supposed to know. I mean, anything. My mother knew sports. My aunts knew sports. Cardinal Cushing brought the nuns. They knew. And I never knew that. So I never knew I wasn't supposed to uh, know about sports. But, you know, growing up, I tried to do things that other little girls did. I didn't want to go to the, well, we didn't have malls in those days. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to sit around and, and do that. I wanted to do things. I wanted to dance and sing. And but you got to live every dream. What do you mean? Well, you you loved sports. You got to right. a career in sports. You loved Broadway. You loved the theater. You got a chance to I did have a career that. in theater. Well, but not everybody does that because they, you know, I think most people want to fit in as they're growing up. Um, my memory is that I never did. My high school friends say that I'm crazy and that I was always part of everything. I never felt it. And maybe that's... You have to feel that maybe to do something like that, to leave your home and um, move to New York and do what you do. Your first professional job, though, was in the theater, and it was? My first time I got paid for singing was still in Boston. I got $25 to open for a little rock singer, and he played baseball sometime. His name was Tony Canigliaro. <laughs> and I got $25 to open for Tony Canigliaro, sing two songs. This was 1966. And, uh, yeah, that was my first job. So I was always going to sing. I did little things like that. But Tony had a rock, a little rock career. Tony had a... Um, Band. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah but he had yeah. a, a, a hit, Little yeah. Red Scooter, was his was his song. And, that's and yeah, so it, it, it always... 
was one one together, baseball and singing and all those kinds of things. And it just so happened that that was my first job. Your favorite sport memory from that from that time period when you're growing up. Your favorite sports memory was. You mentioned the Celtics, you mentioned the Red Sox. You obviously were. 1967, which changed baseball in Boston forever. Um, I was a senior in college, and I went to Fenway. I went to school across the street. And uh, I went every day and sat with the longshoremen out in the bleachers. And my favorite Boston memory ever is October 1st, 1967, when the Red Sox had to beat Minnesota two games. And Jim Cott always said to me, well, you know, it's because I was hurt. Yeah, he broke his arm or his leg. I said, that's too bad. We won. <laughs> um, and I sat there, and I'd never felt anything like that. Everybody sat there, and they had to beat Minnesota, which they did. They beat two, and Jim Lomborg won that game. And then we all had to wait because Detroit was playing California, I believe it was. And one of them had to lose, and I forget which it was. So we sat there because they were playing a doubleheader. And you see the films of everybody running onto the field when Petroselli catches yes. the, the, the pop-up. Um, Sherm Fella came over the loudspeaker and said, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if you go back to your seats, Mr. Yockey will put the Detroit game on the speakers. Everybody marched back to their seats like good little <laughs> boys and girls. And we sat there, and the game was on the loudspeakers. It was packed to the gills. Nobody did anything. Nobody hurt anybody. And, you know, Mr. Yockey would come out and wave, and then Yaz came out and waved. And whoever had to win won. And so the Red Sox were champions for the first time, the 101 shot the first year for Dick Williams, and that was Yaz's MVP year. But this is what I remember because it's never happened again. When that happened, everybody started crying and going out into Kenmore Square, and it was like a party. People went into liquor stores buying all the liquor and giving it to people. No one put down cars. Nobody knocked over. Everybody was running around hugging people and crying and sharing champagne and wine. It was the greatest party I've, I've ever seen, and it was so gentle. And can you imagine saying now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, go back to your seats? And everybody no. does? No. That's my greatest sports memory in Boston ever, I think, because that changed everything for the Red Sox. It changed everything. That's when people started coming. And I was at Ted Williams, and I still have the ticket, so I know. I was at Ted Williams' game where he hit the home run and right. ran around. Last game. There were, I'll bet there were 10,000 people in the park. That's it. Everybody's went, but nobody did. Nobody ever went. And that year, it just changed. And because of Yaz and because of that, and that stands out more than anything, I think. One game short of the win in the World Series. Well, it was tough. and I also can see, well, it was Bob Gibson, but I can see Jim yeah. Lomborg out there on one day's rest and him saying to Dick Williams when he came in, he had tears in his eyes as St. Louis was pummeling the ball, yeah. and him saying, um, I'll try. You know, just yeah. stay in there. Yeah. And it was, and if you remember in that series, the first game was pitched by Jose Santiago because Jim Lawborg had to pitch that game to get into the World Series. Right, it, was, it was just so different back then. Just oh, so yeah. different. Just so different. It's a great time for baseball. It was a great time for the Red Sox, no doubt. So, how, right, given all that, given your background, which growing up and, and growing up a big Boston fan, growing up with the education you had, the sports education that you had, and you going to theater and loving the theater mm -hmm. how do you wind up how do you wind up in the sports business oh okay because um i did shows and i was i was successful enough i just was never famous but i worked a lot i mean i bought my house with manuela mancha so that i did that and um but i always wrote i was on the road a lot and i always wrote and i was always writing sports things to the letters to the editor if we're in philadelphia or wherever we are and when I did my last company of La Mancha, 77 through 79 with Richard Kiley, Richard didn't like getting up early to go on <laughs> Good Morning Pittsburgh right. or Good Morning Toronto. So they always said, we'll get the girl. And after like two seconds of talking, um, someone would say, well, we hear you're a big sports fan. And then I would talk about whatever city I was in because what I learned was, and I was always alone on the road, so I would go to ball games. And how I would go to ball games was call up and say, hi, this is Susan Waldman. I'm starring in the Man of La Mancha. Do you need an anthem singer? This is 70s. Nobody did that. And they were thrilled. I mean, they treated me like I was part of the game. And it was amazing. And um, one day when um, I was in Minnesota, the first time I sang the anthem in the old ballpark, not even the Metrodome, way back, Bloomington, in 79. And um, 
Joe Garagiola and Wes Parker were doing the game. And Tom Meese, the PR guy from Minnesota, who's long gone now, but he said, uh, Miss Waldman, would you, your Red Sox are in town, would you like to go down, Don't this is before sports, would you like to go down to the Red Sox dugout? Oh yeah, okay. So I'm sitting there in my little Boston hat and I'm talking to Jim Rice and Wes Parker, who I'd never met before and have never seen again, was standing waiting to talk to me because they had all gone to see Man La Mancha the night before. And I'm talking to Rice and he's standing there because he wants to get into theater and wants to talk to me about theater. Oh. And I'm, I get up and, I and he introduces himself to me and he said something that changed my life. A couple of things happened that year. But one of them was, have you ever thought of doing this for a living? And I said, doing what for a living? And he said, well, just the way you were talking to Jim Rice right there. That's really good. He said some amazing things to you. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. And, you know, 1979, there's nothing yeah, that. No, and no. I'm going to be a, I'm a star, right? I'm going to be a, starring in middle of Mancha, Minnesota. Uh, so, but that happened. And also 79 is when theater started to change. The voices started to change. Andrew Lloyd Webber happened. I had a seminal moment with Andrew Lloyd Webber that, you know, where he said to me when I was singing, auditioning for Evita, the, stars, the sh star of the show is the music, not the girl. Hmm. Changed my life. Cause Solid that, advice. Uh, well, that because now yeah. you look at his shows. I was an old time Broadway singer. I'm one of those. You walk out, Ethel Merman, Barbara Cook, all, Mary Martin, all those people. I don't have a voice. I don't have a, you know, I don't blend in. And now, and and Andrew Lederer was right. Phantom of the Opera will run 50 years. You have no idea who's playing in it, do you? Doesn't matter, because the show is the star, not the people in it. And that's, 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 he changed Broadway forever because of that thought. And I said, I got to get out of here. I, I can't do this anymore. So I started thinking about what else can I do? Oh, you know, sports. Well, that would be cute. The broadcaster of the Boston Red Sox, Ken Coleman, was a, my, one of my best friends. And um, we had a little company together where I would record songs and he'd write things. We did them for different ballparks all over the country and stuff. And, um, he had said, you know, maybe you should think of getting into sports. I said, doing what? And he said, well, talking, like you talk. And so I, I took three or four journalism classes in the city, and I still was doing clubs, and my last show was a Broadway show called Nine. That was my last show that I did, and it was early 80s. Yeah, great show. And I was in that for a while and, and toured with that. And then um, we get back here, and... I made like little videotapes with a guy. We did a, a, a video called Point, no, Punt, Counterpunt, to take off on Point, Counterpoint, if everybody remembers what that is. Sure. Nobody does anymore. But we'd sit and we'd talk sports and argue sports. And Ken said to me, a couple of years go by, and Ken says, you know, I got this friend. His name is John Shannon. They're putting something together, I don't know, W at Fan or something. He's going to meet you. So I went and I met this guy. He said, get me a tape. And I said, yeah, okay. A tape of what? Well, <laughs> you know, sports guest. Well, how do you do that? I did have a friend right. at CBS, and he was doing overnights, and he said, well, come on in the studio at 5.30 in the morning. We'll put something together. And I had my little cassette, and we did a phony sports cast, and I went and I got this job, and there we are. So that's how you got to the fan. That's how I got to the fan. What was it like? What were the early days of the fan like? The first uh, all-sports station... Well, when I opened my mouth for the first time, the, they were yelling and screaming outside, get that broad off with the Boston accent off my air in um, Afternoon Drive. Um, it was awful. It was, um, you know, I wasn't prepared for the hatred of women. I was not prepared for that. I mean, I was, I was 40 when I opened my mouth for the first time on the air. And I was not prepared for the backlash. I had no idea of the hatred of half of the population and what people actually thought. Those first days I would get, I mean, the mail, I know I know that there's cyber stalking and stuff, I would get used condoms in the mail and feces in the mail and I had death threats. It was horrible, horrible stuff. Just because I was talking sports on the air. It was, it was awful, <laughs> but, but I was gonna stay there. Well, you're a strong person, Susan. You're a strong personality, I mean, probably took everything you had to get through that. I mean, how well, do you, weather, gonna, how do you get through do? that? Well, you do, because what would I do? I mean, I didn't have... Well, you weren't going to quit. That's not who no. you are. No, no, no. No, you I never was, quit. That's I was not. not. Um, 88, first year, they tried to fire all the women off the off the air. I remember sitting in the uh, 
press box in Cleveland, the old station, the old stadium, and uh, um, got a call from the general manager, then general manager's secretary. And she said, well, you can finish covering, you finish the World Series, and then you know we're letting you go. And I said, who else did you fire? Because I heard they fired 18 people. And she read, every woman on the air was on the list. And I said, okay, tell them I've got them. And I hung up the phone, and I called the union. And um, union took care of that, because you can't do that. You can't fire every woman off the air in the middle of New York City. Um, so a lot of the women took a settlement I wanted my job back. And as long as I was getting my job back, I spe specified what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted two teams, and I wanted to stop doing. I did everything. I did everything that the guys didn't want to do. I said, the Yankees and the Knicks are mine, and that's it. Well, and you managed to take that. that. I mean, you managed to take that and, and, and really launch yourself. I mean, that was a great, actually turned out to be a great thing for you. It was started off so poorly and so badly through no fault of your own, it turned into actually a very good thing. Well, it was interesting also because FAN didn't quite know how to do this because they started with all these national people and you know paying all these national people a lot of money to come. And they would, for example, they'd have a morning show that um, had Bill Madden was on it, Moss Klein, people like that. Now, in the Daily News, in the Post and all that, they're not going to tell you scoops because they're going to do it in the paper. So huh. they do. So I went to the then program director and I said, you know, we should do this ourselves. Give me a tape recorder and I'll go to these games. And so I was actually the first electronic beat reporter of any kind in 1987, going back there, not just getting tape. I was reporting on the games, and, and what they found was, wow, this is great. She can go on the air at 3 o'clock in the morning and break a story. And that had never happened before. So I had, did, I had done that. And so because of that, you, became, you make yourself indispensable. So I went in my car, and I would do a Seton Hall-St. Peter's game and then do the Nets and then do the Knicks, and nobody wanted to go to... Um, Nick's practice because they had this new coach named was Patino and I said I, I'll go I'll go I know who he is because he used to make the kids at BU sure, run up and down sure. the right. court with bricks in their hands and they practiced in Westchester and I lived there and the guys didn't want to go I'll go I also did every hockey team including the Devils so when the Devils got to the playoffs I was the only one that knew the team so I had to go to the playoffs so you got to, but you got to meet everybody yeah. You got to meet everybody. You got to expand your horizons. You got to you got to learn the sports beat as it was in New York, and you excelled right. at it. Right. Well, thank you. You That's excelled at it, and and I liked that. I loved breaking stories. I was the greatest. You're very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, where were you the first time you heard the you heard the Yes? You heard of Yes? Do you remember the first time you heard it? Heard the name? Heard the heard the name? Mm -hmm. Heard that the Yankees maybe starting their own yeah television network. Well, where, yeah. Where were you? Well, I was with you, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. Where was I? Well, that was, you had left the baseball network, right? And you were at Fox. Remember uh, that? Yeah? Yes, you were. I had left, well, yes, we have a couple of baseball networks here. Right, I no, had left no, the, 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 the one that we right, did. The, the, uh, the one in the mid-90s. The one the, in the mid-90s. Right, there was NBC, ABC, and Major League Baseball. And you were? Right, but you had worked at the baseball network. Yes. Yes. Well, that was because of you I worked at that, because uh, Tom Seaver said you have to meet this. Remember we had yes. lunch in the yes, press box? Yes, I do remember Tom that. Tom Seaver is a big part of this Our story. mutual friend. Well, tell the story, Susan. Well, Tom Seaver used, was... He should have been the GM of the Yankees, and he would have been a great GM. But he, he, was, doing, he was doing games. And Tom Seaver was one of these guys that um, he didn't trust people. And I, I understand that because he's been, quote, unquote, Tom Seaver since he was 12. So, you know, people that come up. And I, when I introduced myself to him, um, he was doing PIX or whatever he was doing. And I just said to him, I just want to introduce myself to you. My name is Susan Waldman. And Roger says that if you didn't join the Red Sox in 86, we never would have gone to the World Series, so thank you. And he smiled, and that became a, a great friendship. And he knew you yes. from Greenwich and yes. used to talk gardening and all that, yes. and all that stuff. And yes, we, we would have um, dinners in the old Yankee Stadium press, press dining room. That's right. So that's how I met you, through him. That's right. Uh, Tom is an amazing, amazing, yeah, amazing person. Sad, he yeah. he uh, didn't like being famous. You know, you I and know. I both know that it was not his thing. And there were people who would get upset with him because, you know, he, he 
he was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable with fame. Some people are just uncomfortable with it, and it's fine. You know what he did in... He was uh, a great friend. You couldn't have had a better friend. The first time I did a game, it was a radio game in 1992, and Bob Murphy wouldn't go to Houston because <laughs> he and Milo Hamilton were fighting. So he didn't <laughs> want to go. So Al Harrison calls FAN Harrison. and says, you know, I think it would be great. Get, get Susan to go. And, you know, I don't know anything about Not only do I, am I not a National League person, the last team I knew about was the Houston Astros back then. And so, I, but I did, I studied, and I got scouting. Paul O'Neill gave me scouting reports in 1992, his first year. And Tom Seaver gave me two scorecards. And it said the George Thomas Seaver official scorecard, and he dated the games I was doing. I didn't keep them. I, if I had known, if I had thought sure. about it. But it was, it was so kind. He was so kind. We were in Minnesota one day, and it was my birthday. And he found out it was my birthday. He bought... The first expensive bottle of wine I ever had was bought by Tom Seaver in a little store in Minnesota where he was friends with the owner. He was a wonderful man. Besides being a great baseball mind, I remember him telling me about certain... I said, look at this guy, and I won't say the name. He said, he said Tommy John, waiting to happen. And within three months, that's exactly what happened. He was, um, he was a brilliant mind. It's, he was, that's it. It's so sad. And a good friend, oh, a really a good friend. a great friend, friend uh, to all of us, and... Yeah, that was um, some interesting times. It was some fun times. And uh, all right, so so you you wind up part of the baseball network, and you get a chance to go on air <laughs> as part of the baseball network. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're walking around this. Go ahead. No, it was the first. Um, yeah, and <laughs> and I remember you saying to me when we started. He said, "You better mess." You better not mess this up or I'll be in Guam tomorrow. Yeah, for <laughs> because, sure. Because you had told these people, yeah, get this girl on. Oh, yeah. excuse me, you can't say girl no, anymore. Say it. Um, say it. I can say it. The world, to me, is boys and girls. So, okay. So I was, so you, you better not mess up or I'll be in Guam tomorrow That's, morning. Yep, And something like that. You know what also I remember about that first day? It was a game with the Texas Rangers. Mm -hmm. And it was me and Steve Busby, whom nice I've man. never met. Nice okay, man. I didn't know that, though, because yeah. Paul Splitoff had told me he hated women on the air, so I didn't know. And here's another thing I remember. Bobby Mercer going to you. Mm -hmm. Kay told me this years ago. Mm -hmm. um, years afterwards, Bobby Mercer going to you and saying, don't put her in with a stranger in her first <laughs> game. What's wrong with you? I'll go there, too. <laughs> so Bobby showed up, That's right? right. That That's came, right. And there's Mercer in right. there so that I, I wouldn't feel... Badly, right. right? But Busby was amazing. We had a great time. Oh, he's a, uh, he he's was a good guy. So yeah. was Bobby. I was obviously, yeah. So, and you that did it, and you did game. it, and you did a really good job, and you enjoyed it. I did, and then we we did that for two years, actually, off and on for two years. That after that first night, the team flew to Minnesota, and I'm sitting in a studio because all these radio stations. I mean, this woman, my mm -hmm. God, either I was curing cancer or you know stabbing. Who knows what I was doing? But it was very important that I go on all these night shows. And I'll tell you what I remember most about that night. Um, this is 1994 now. Mm -hmm. um, not Tom, I was on Tom Snyder, all these big, but there was a, a show in Philadelphia, and it was a radio show, and one of the hosts was an ex-Eagle, and I can't remember who it is. But he said, well, i got to tell you something. I don't like women in sports, but last night something happened. And I said, what? Or tonight something happened. He said, I have an 8-year-old daughter, and she was sitting and she was watching. And I said to myself, she's never going to know that she can't do this because there you are. That's a great story. I just loved I wish I could remember who it was. But it, it, it was, um, yeah, that was great. So you're, ro <laughs> you're a role model once again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a scary thing to be named, yeah. Role model and yeah. role model and role model and role yeah. model. Yeah, whatever. Well, that says a lot. And, and, and you've, had to, you've, had to, you've had to conquer cancer. Yeah. Well, yeah, I did that. Well, that was um, 96. That was 96. And, uh, and that was a long story because I was misdiagnosed and they missed it and, and it was just awful. And I had just, I was going to sign a contract to do, I was still doing FAN, but I was still going to, I was going to do games on PIX and, and MSG. And the story became public. I never wanted it public, but new, somebody in the New York press found out and put it in the paper. So I had to go through chemo and radiation and all that stuff in front of everybody. And I remember I called my mother, and then I called George. 
and told him, so he's the second person I, I told that I had cancer. George is a big part of all of this. Um, and I said, well, you know, so I've got, I've got cancer and I have to have all this. And is that why I don't have my contract? <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> he said, I said, do you want, not going to let me go on the air because, you know, I'll be bald and throwing up? I promise I won't be bald in the booth and I won't throw up. And he said, no, 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 you should have had it by now and all that. And um, I fired my first oncologist because he wouldn't let me go to spring training. And I met this, and I said, I'm not going to look at this guy's face for six months. Find me somebody else. And the, the nurse said, well, you know, we do have other people here. There's a woman. She's, you know, people don't like her. She's very cutting edge. She's kind of bitchy, and the guys don't like her. I said, that's my girl. And she made a whole protocol of, I said, well, you better, I'm going to spring training, so you better <laughs> give me something so I don't die. And I was giving myself shots, and she did chemo in a certain way and made it because quality of life they thought was very important to do that. And for from February to June, I was going through chemo. I missed it every three weeks, so I did. I missed the day I had chemo and the day after. But the Yankees were amazing to me. I mean, Gene Monaghan had my, my Nupagen, which I was giving myself shots with so I wouldn't die, in every refrigerator in the in the American League it had to be refrigerated it had a refrigerator in the in the hotel if I was on the plane they had saltines and club soda it was amazing how they took care of me and you know here we are it's 24 years later it tell, will be tell me why George Steinbrenner was so special um, well I think it has to do with who you are and and how you meet and what that was when I started in 87 um, everybody of course, <laughs> would run after George, 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 and, you know, and he would walk and you couldn't stop. And in 87, it started in 87, you couldn't go into the elevator if Mr. Steinbrenner went into the elevator. But I learned that if I ran up the ramps and beat him to the office, he would always talk to me. So he'd go into the, the uh, clubhouses and he'd do what he did, and then people would run down, George, George, he'd get into that elevator, and you couldn't go in. And everybody stood there and walked away. I ran up the ramp. And we started talking, and he was like walking, watching me. And I think it was 88. He had, um, he always took the beat writers to lunch during the winter. And one year he was taking them to 21. And I used to go to 21 when I was in theater, and I wanted to go. And I called the PR director then, which was Harvey Green, and I said, why aren't I invited? I'm a, I'm a beat reporter. I get break all kinds of stories. Well, no, it's girls, and you're, you're a girl. You can't go. So I didn't go. And I wrote George a letter. And I, <laughs> I called the sales department of FAN, and I said, tell me what my 5 o'clock spot sells for and how many people listen. And it turned out that it sold for a lot of money, and more people listened to that five, ten-minute thing at five o'clock than read every paper in the tri-state area. So I wrote him a letter, and I said, this is why I am important. I am coming to Tampa, and I demand an interview by myself. And I didn't tell him I was going to Safety Harbor Spa, but, you know, that didn't matter at the time. And I, I did, and when I got to Tampa... The light in my hotel was blinking, and his secretary called and said, uh, Mr. Steinberg, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And by the way, I've Xeroxed every, that letter and sent it to every woman in the building. And so I went down, and there's George, and I walk in, and he says, um, all right, Waldman, what do you want? And I said, well, I want an interview. And he said, let me tell you something. I don't like women cops. I don't like women firefighters. I don't like women in sports. I like women to look pretty and spend my money. And I said, Okay, I can do that. Now, I've got an interview, and I want to talk to you about this team. And he started laughing, and we were really good friends. He was very tough on me because he said to me about a year afterwards, he said, um, Waldman, one of these days I'm going to make a statement about women in sports. You're it, and I hope you can take it. This was before the death threats. This was before bad stuff really started to happen. And he was great. He was going to – he wanted to get – a woman and he was going to make somebody that person and it just happened to me because I but we we understood each other he'd yell at me and hang up the phone and I'd call him back and hang up on him and I think as you know so well George um loved a good fight and <laughs> George loved it and when never, he didn't like yes men he really didn't well not why yes but yeah, yes but, yeah, he, he didn't like that he yeah. wanted people to 
You know, that's why Stick Michael was there his whole life, yeah. because he'd say, no, George, you're wrong. But he was, and, and I always say my mother, my grandfather, and George Steinbrenner are the three most important people in my life. Um, when I got my divorce, the second person I called after my mother was George. When I got notified for cancer, when, I, when the hospital that misdiagnosed me, I called George. To, so he got me, he got my, my divorce lawyer, he got me my malpractice lawyer, he was always there when you need him. And I'm not saying he's not tough, you, you know. This was the toughest guy you know, if you, and you, he was so mercurial, you didn't know what he'd get mad at. Sometimes I'd go on the air and I'd say something about the team and I'd say, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to be cut off. That's it. And he'd never say anything. And then one day I said that the bus was late going to the airport. He called me screaming. How dare you put that on the air? You're cut off, Waldman. Hung up the phone. And then I wait a couple of days and call. Well, you know, you know uh, these stories. Um, I've been on the other end of it myself. But it's not... It, it, he was so helpful is this silly word. I mean, he really, he did things that you couldn't believe. When he was suspended, called me up and he said, is your father still alive? And I said, well, yeah. And Boston was playing Oakland in the playoffs. And he said, okay, hungs up the phone. Two days later, my dad gets his tickets to the playoff game because he's not allowed to go my dad he's looking at these tickets which are owner's tickets at Fenway Park <laughs> and, you know, it was you know he would just do yeah. these things do you know flip the, to this day I will someone at least one or two a year will say to me you know um, my dad never had a chance to tell anybody but um, George put him through college yeah and my grandfather was a cop or this and I went through all this sickness and George paid my bills and I don't have anybody to tell anymore so I'm telling you. My favorite story was Tony Fossis. Do you know the story? Oh. Remember Tony Fossis, the left-hander? Mm -hmm. George had a scholarship for student-athletes at University of South Florida, one of the Florida schools. Tony Fossis, who at the time was 36 or 37, came up to me and he said, you know, I think George paid for my education. Can you find out? I just would like to thank him. And he gave me a letter. So I go to George, and I, I said, George, did you put Tony Fossis through school at university? He said, I'm not telling you that. And I said, well, why not? He said, Waldman, what's the highest form of charity? It's in your Bible, Waldman. And I said, I know. Anonymity is the highest form of charity, right. George. He said, well, then I'm not telling you. And I said, he just wants to say thank you. And I gave him the letter, and it, and it was, and he did. And I said, just let him say thank you. But that was George, and it's... He used to put police officers' children or yes, firefighters' children who school. passed away in the oh. line of duty. He'd put the kids through school, yep. and no one would know. And, it, and I'd say, you don't want to publicize it. And he'd say, no, because if someone knows about it, then it's, it defeats the whole purpose right. of it. I don't want to do that. I I'm love not that. His that. thing was, Waldman, it's in your Bible. The first Bible to him. What's the highest form of charity, Waldman? All right. Yeah. So, where and by we, the way, I miss him every day. Oh, so, you know, and so do I. And one of the, the last podcasts we did, I was railing about why he's not in the Hall of Fame. It's that, to me, oh. it's the greatest miscarriage of justice. That's another it's podcast a, altogether. That is, that is, that is. Uh, it, I can't scream loud enough. I can't tell enough people. I can't have enough platforms to say what an injustice that is. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, no disrespect to other people who get in. I that's understand. fine. That's that's the, whatever the. People vote, they vote, but I'll tell you what, that that is such an oversight. They've over they've corrected one. Marvin Miller right. was a big oversight. That's been corrected now. You need to correct this. Do you know want to hear a great story? Olaida sure. Eddie Einhorn, uh, one of the owners of the White sure. Sox. It was the year before he died. I think it was when this new stadium opened. He came on the air with John and me, and he's been we've been all friends for years. And we were talking about George and the Hall of Fame and all that. And Eddie said, let me tell you something about George and the owners who dislike him. Every owner should get down on their hands and knees and thank the, the Lord above that George Steinbrenner is alive because we're all billionaires because of George Steinbrenner. Telling. It's very telling. But, you know, but still in all this, it's, it's where's the votes? Where, where's the, where are the people, you know, I don't get it. supporting George? Yeah. And that to me is, I'm sorry, I, uh, I'm. It'll take me a long time to get over it. I'm not over it. I'll never get over it. And hopefully that gets corrected one day. That needs to be that needs to be fixed. All right. So let's let's move on a little bit, Susan. So sure. all right. So uh, I, I, I want to go down another path with you. We're talking about George. I just want to, I, one more thing on George. So all right. So he and Yogi. 
right? Mm-hmm. Yogi, he fires Yogi, and Yogi was the manager of the Yankees, and you know, he said he was a keeper, and then he fires right, him, right, and then right. Jordan, Yogi says, I'll never come back to right. Yankee stand to see George Steinway, right. part of the Yankees again. It was for many, 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 many years. Fourteen. Right? Fourteen years. <laughs> so I, I know that you were instrumental in this, so please, to our listeners, tell our listeners how you were instrumental in, in getting this, this, these, this two, these two great people for baseball back together well, again, and how that happened. It's funny because everybody, Gene Michael tried, Arthur Richmond tried, it went on for years, everybody. And it started, I don't know, one, like early December, or just on 1999 it was. And the program director of WFAN called me and said, Yogi Berra is opening a museum. Um, we're going to do the first show from there. You're going to do six to nine. Um, you know, it's going to be 73 Mets are going to be there and all that. Wouldn't it be great if George and Yogi made up on the air. And I said, yeah, that's great. Right? Good idea, Mark. I hung up the phone. But I'm thinking of doing it. And um, George called for about something about a few days later. And I said, George, by the way, I want to talk to you about Yogi. Now, Otto Graham had just died. And Joe DiMaggio was getting sick. And I said, I want to talk to you about Yogi. And George said, what's wrong? And as soon as he said, what's wrong, I said, go for it. And I said, you know, I think it's time, and yada, yada. And he said, all right, well, we'll do it during spring training. I said, no, no, no. You have to come here. you got to come to his museum on that date, and you're going to make up on the air. And he said, <laughs> he stopped for a minute, and he said, all right, well, uh, well, I'll think about it. Now, George never talked to any of those people. George, my priority was George. I didn't know Yogi. You know, I know everybody loved jo- Yogi. Right. I never met him. I met him once at Mel Allen's funeral, but that's it. So I called the head of museum, and I ended up negotiating with Dale Berra back and forth about what would happen. And George actually was going to do it a few weeks earlier, and he said, well, what does he want? Well, he wants you to apologize. Well, what does he want me to apologize for? I said, I don't know, George, whatever you did. I don't know what he's mad at. All right, well, find out. I said, no, you know what it is. So he's going to come up, and he actually sent his driver from Teterboro to see how long it was going to take to get there, he actually was going to was going to do it. Was going to come up now. Contingency plan. No one could know. No one. They knew I was doing the show. Could never say anything because it might not have worked. And then I'd be stuck for three hours with the seventy-three vets and Ed Charles and, and, and <laughs> I don't know what I'd be doing. Um, but it went back and forth, and it was going to be in, right around Christmas. <laughs> and then George calls me because the governor of Florida dropped dead. And he said, we can't do it. I said, what do you mean we can't do it? He said, well, I have to go to this funeral. He's a friend. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, I'll call Yogi and tell him. So in his mind, he had already apologized. He had figured, you know, yeah. And I said, no, no, you can't call. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can't. Let's see if we can do it. So we did it for two weeks later. So he comes up and he actually and I've negotiated, this can't happen, and this can't happen, and no one's there. It's just me and George and Yogi, and I had set up an hour of talk in case it worked. I'd called Joe Garagiola, I'd called Ted Williams, I'd called Bill White, I'd gotten all these people in case this worked. And George comes in, and Yogi says, you're late. <laughs> and they start talking and they go into another room and I'm standing there behind a pole and Tim Barra comes up and says what, what are you doing I said I'm just watching my career go up in smoke if this doesn't work and I hear yelling out of this room and Carmen Yogi's wife goes in and then they both come out and they're arm and on and it worked and he's showing them the museum and we're taking pictures and I remember that um, we sat down in, this, in that auditorium in Yogi's place and no one's in there no one's in there and it's me and Yogi and George and the engineer and the people from the museum. And I started with, hey, welcome to Yogi Berra's museum, yada, yada, yada. Mr. Steinbrenner, you remember Mr. Berra. Mr. Berra, do you remember? And we talked. They talked for an hour. They made up on the air. But as I was talking, people were running in. I mean, they had heard it on the thing, people coming out of grocery stores and out of train stations, really, people coming in workout clothes, and the place was packed in 15, 20 minutes. And we had all those people on and telling memories and, and all that, and um, we were on for about an hour, and then we went to a break, and George said, I'm really tired, that's enough. And, and that, was, that was great, and they, 
made up and it, I think it helped Yogi for the rest of his life. I think it became something that was really, really important. Yogi and Carmen became, I mean, I can't remember a time I didn't know them. We'd go to you know concerts together and we were really good friends. And after that, and Yogi came back to where he should have been all this time. I remember that day, um, the Yogi Berra day, of course, the baseball also was part of it. And I was on the air that day also, David Corner. I remember <laughs> as he was going around in the car and everybody's crying and I'm crying and I remember saying to myself, boy, I, you did that. Yeah, you did do that. And that I was, mean, you know, I get you yeah. what George said. I called him at the hotel afterwards and I got home because I'm talking about <laughs> Crane Pool and yeah, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> and all I know is that George and Yogi have made up and I'm talking to the 73 Mets. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got back um, and I called George and I said, um, what do you think? And he said, what a great day for the New York Yankees. And then he stopped and he said, wasn't too bad for you, Waldman, either, was it? So, you know, you had to throw that little zinger in through the, yeah. As I said, I miss him every every day. Yeah, he was he was very special. He was very special in my life as well, as you know. And uh, especially my son Pierce. My yeah. son Pierce was battling cancer. He was yep. right there for him, and I'll never forget what he did for us. And what they did for me. He challenged you every day. He cha Absolutely. And people didn't understand that part about him. He challenged you to make you better. I mean, right. for as good as you think you may have been, he, he he challenged you to make you better. Every day he made you better. He put you on your toes and, and you got to realize whatever potential you have, you got to realize a lot of it because right. of him. Oh, absolutely. He was that kind absolutely. of person. I will absolutely. never forget what Teaches what you how to fight, too. He did, he right, exactly. And he so respected I, you I still if you fought back. Until this day, um, somebody will, will, when someone will say, when something will happen and I'll have to fight to get yeah. well, you're quite a fighter, aren't you? And I always say, I was taught by the best. Yeah, well, that you've had to go through a lot in your life, yeah. and you needed people like George to teach you that, and that's what you learned from a George Steinbrenner. Yeah, taught you a lot of things. And you sure did. Do you know what I used to do when I started doing those games like MSG and PIX? All that I was told this. That he used to like put on a raincoat and a hat and stuff and go to bars like Runyons and stuff where they'd have yes people and he'd sit, no he'd sit there like you wouldn't know who it was like a civilian yeah you know, like sit there with a hat <laughs> on and you don't know this George Steinberg yeah. he said what do you think of that girl and he said he said the same thing would come out of everybody's mouth well I don't like women in sports but she's okay I mean, more than okay you imagine George sitting there pretending you no. know, thinking that he doesn't nobody knows who he is he didn't put the mustache on like Bobby Valentine <laughs> but he'd go in and they told me at Runyon's that you know, he'd have a coat on and a hat over like no one knew who he was I mean you've done so many different things in your career so many diverse things so many exceptional things how would you like to be remembered Susan well I think I want on my tombstone or whatever they have she succeeded when she shouldn't have. Badly well, put, but uh, you know what I mean. Well, I do know. I, I, well, never, how about nevertheless she prevailed? <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> Nonetheless, nevertheless, yeah. but she prevailed. But, but you certainly did that, Susan. Thank you for spending time with us. It's, Anytime. Uh, thank you on our podcast and appreciate it very much. And we'll see you at the ballpark. Thank you. You'll see me probably before that. Soon. <laughs> Bye, Susan. Great interview, Flip. Great interview. She is a, she's a true Yankee. She is a, uh, she's a true legend, and she's a true role model. Absolutely. I loved it. So did I. And if you like what you've heard today, when Kevin is here, he always says to me, Flip, we rate, we review, and we subscribe. Can you say that, Ashley? Rate, review, and subscribe. That's it. See, if you don't want to believe me, you got to believe the great Ashley Fugazi, who often says it's time to... Land the plane, Flip. Time to land the plane. <laughs> so, for Ashley Fugazi and Kevin Sullivan, who's on assignment, whatever that means, we'll see you soon. We love you. <laughs>